Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. It had just been two days since my sit-down exclusive with Mark Castellano, and although he told me he had nothing to do with the disappearance of his missing ex-girlfriend, Michelle Warner, I just knew there was more to his story than he was telling. Everything about my interview jumped out at me. His account of the night Michelle vanished, his body language, his demeanor. I knew right then he was lying to me. I gave him multiple chances for him to admit his guilt, but he just wasn't ready to crack. He was at the edge, but not quite ready to tumble over, and was remaining adamant that he had not harmed his girlfriend, Michelle. As I said, people seldom confess in a crowd. If you know more about this than you're saying, if you are involved with something that's happened to her, if you lost your temper and choked her too far or something bad happened, if you were involved in her death in some way, it is a tremendous gift to your son to tell me now. Like I said, she walked all over me. That was the story he came up with, and at that time, it was the story he was sticking to, that she had left him high and dry, that she had left her young son, too, without as much as a phone call or a text message to check on the child, without so much as a phone call or a text message to let them know of her whereabouts. He had done a good job of tarnishing her character as well, painting her as irresponsible and like the type of woman who could have just run away. That was the story he came up with, and at that time, it was the story he was sticking to, that she had left him high and dry, and she had left her young son, too, without as much as a phone call or text message. He had done a good job of tarnishing her character as well, painting her as irresponsible and like the type of woman who could have just run away. The investigation was heating up in Houston, but there was still no sign of Michelle. Meanwhile, we had gotten in touch with her family, her mother and her brother, and they were preparing to come fly to Los Angeles to do an interview with me to beg the public for any information about her disappearance. They were trying their best to remain positive but they were beginning to lose hope. Deep down, I felt like they were convinced Michelle had met with foul play and that Mark was the man responsible. Before flying on a plane, Michelle's mother had to be calmed down several times. She would be fine one second, and although she remained calm, there seemed to be hysteria brewing just below the surface. Her family knew that if Michelle was alive, They needed to do press to get her picture out there. They needed that attention on her case. But it was understandably hard for them to hold it together while planning out the logistics of making all of that happen. At this point, I thought maybe 
just maybe I had heard the last from Mark. I knew I'd pushed him to a point, and I was pretty sure the next time police got him in a room, they would crack him. I felt like I was the last person he would ever talk to, turn to, or reach out to again. But then, the case was about to take a wild turn I never could have foreseen. We would soon hear a killer's haunting confession as he sat in a police interrogation room. In real time, we would help put an end to this tragic story of when love turns to violent hate. This was one of the most shocking cases I've ever come across in my entire career. We're about to take you behind the scenes and let you in on things Mark exclusively told us about what he did and why he says he had to do it. You're listening to Episode 3 of Twisted Love, Bringing a Murderer to Justice, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. The next part of this story takes place while Michelle's family was in the air on a plane flying to Los Angeles to meet with me. While they were en route, my team was in the office in the midst of editing together Mark's interview. Now understand, what you see on television is the finished product. What you don't see is how it all gets put together how everything gets coordinated, and how many very capable and dedicated people are working on it at one time. And that's what was happening here. I had been to Odessa, I had sat down with Mark, and conducted this interview after a lot of background checking and digging by my staff. Then, as soon as we left there, they began to edit that and book additional players in this story so we could present a complete, fully rounded-out story. And this is what all was happening while his family was in the air flying out here to make these pleas on the air. Now, while all of this was going on, unexpectedly, my producer, the same one who had met Mark, got a text message that stopped her dead in her tracks. It was from Mark. Now, it's not uncommon for producers to get texts and phone calls from guests long after the show has taped. So she really didn't think anything of it when she popped it open. But believe you me, this one was different. When she opened it, she couldn't believe her eyes. I confessed. I killed her. That was all it said. Can you imagine getting a text like this? A normal person, a television producer, just doesn't usually deal with people confessing to murder 
by a text message. She wasn't sure where he was or what to do. And she also had a sick feeling in her gut. Michelle's family was on a plane to meet us. And they still thought Michelle was alive. They were going to land in Los Angeles with us knowing that he had just confessed to killing her. She figured she would just treat him like a normal person and try and create a dialogue. And so she wrote back, quote, what? All caps. Then she called him. She, of course, was beyond shocked when he picked up the phone and answered. Casually, as if he was just chatting to a friend, he said he had killed Michelle and was actually at the police station at that very moment about to show police where he had dumped her body. He told her, you know what? I felt bad about lying to Dr. Phil. He got me to the edge. It was too much lying and I just can't do it anymore. He sounded deflated and defeated, a man who had given up. At that point, honestly, my producer is freaking out. She asked him if he'd be willing to speak to me again, and he said, sure. But she knew this guy was about to get arrested, so while trying to get me connected with him, we also acted fast. Someone grabbed a camera, and she asked him if he was okay if she recorded their conversation. He said he was fine with that. He was ready to come clean. He wasn't hysterical. His voice was calm and measured. He could have been reading a grocery store list as opposed to confessing to murder. That's how calm and collected he seemed. And that is a window to how cold he really was. He told her he had done it. He had strangled Michelle after a fight, then disposed of her body. You know, we were fighting and Let his wording sink in for a minute. It was over with. He didn't talk about seeing the life leaving her eyes. He didn't say he felt horror at the murder he had just committed. No, no, no. It was just simply, quote, over with, in his eyes, like a trip to the dentist. It's also very interesting to note that once he's done this in a fit of passion, he had that pivotal moment to reflect, to turn this horrifying situation around. It was a moment that literally could have been a decision of life or death. Even if he heard her neck snap, no matter how sure he was that she was gone, he could have tried to see if there was any hope of bringing her back but he chooses not to call 911. He's not trying to see if there's a glimmer of hope he can revive her. He was done with her. She was a problem that in his eyes he had now eliminated. Back when I interviewed him, his story of her hitting him during the fight seemed shaky to me at best. I noted at the time that he couldn't seem to recall where she had hit him which I felt like indicated he was being deceptive. 
On this confession call, he admits she hadn't actually made contact with him or physically injured him at all. This was not a case of self-defense. When, when we saw you, you didn't have any kind of defensive wounds. Dr. Phil noticed that you didn't have any kind of defensive wounds on your hands or your face or your around your hairline. Did she fight back or was she crying and kicking and screaming and trying to fight you off? No. She took a swing at me, she missed, and that's when I grabbed her. And it's like I said, I fell forward and, you know, her neck popped. And so coming down, you know, I just walked up and she didn't have a chance to. Like when I said it happened so fast, I mean, it did, it happened. I, I, I couldn't try to do that again if, you, if I had to. Do I believe him? Not for a second. I wouldn't believe him if he was standing on a stack of Bibles. He's making it sound like some serendipitous event that he fell forward. Don't you hate it when that happens? He just fell forward. He was contradicting himself even during his phone confession. Claiming you fell forward makes it seem accidental. Like choking another person to death could happen to anyone unlucky enough to trip and fall forward. Please. Think about the last time you tripped and fell. I very much doubt that that caused you to choke a person to death. It makes me doubt whether she ever took a swing at him at all. And even if she had, that was his solution? To choke her until her neck snapped? So hard, so violently, so viciously, that even by his own description, he says, I heard her neck snap. Even looking at their size differences, she was a petite and slender woman. He had a few extra pounds on him. Not a fair physical fight by any means. Men are structured differently muscularly. That's why I say over and over and over again, men should never lay their hands on a woman in anger, no matter what the circumstance. So now she's dead or practically dead with a snapped neck and Mark needs to make decisions quickly. Their young son is in the next room. This is an apartment complex. He cannot exactly stroll outside with her body undetected. So he takes another approach. I covered her up because I couldn't hear Kate wanting to come in and see what was going on. Yeah. So I covered her up, put her on the bed, and covered up with a blanket, telling her that she was sleeping, and, you know, started getting his brain dirty. I had to get him out of there. So moments after killing her, he's on to his cover-up plan. Who knows how this young son might have felt in that moment? Was he confused? Scared? We know he was wanting to come in and see what was going on, so as young as he was, he had heard the altercation and knew instinctively something was wrong. Mark told us on the phone that Caden saw her purse sticking out from under the blanket. He knew his mother was covered up and that this was not normal. It's really gut-wrenching to think about Mark telling this young boy that mommy is sleeping. That's an image that could stay in a child's mind forever. He was then planning on letting his son think that his mother abandoned him 
abandoned him without a word, without a care, without a consideration. What people don't understand is that when children are exposed to domestic violence, it doesn't just have an impact on them while it's happening. Children that are exposed to violence in the home, arguing, yelling, screaming, it changes who they are. And it can do that whether it's habitual or a one-time traumatic occurrence. It impacts who they become. It impacts their development. And it can lead to a lot of different things in children. It can lead to depressive disorders. It can put them at high risk for drug use, underperformance in school, relationships that are violent in their own right. Kids may develop behavioral issues as a result of being exposed to this type of trauma, such as regressing to a younger age, bedwetting, sucking their thumb, or exhibiting aggressive behaviors, tantrums, violence. They tend to have issues with academics and behavior in school. They have feelings of self-blame, grief, and low self-esteem. They are at high risk for substance abuse and other dangerous behaviors, and they can have PTSD. Mark Castellano killed his son's mother. In a world where a parent is supposed to protect their child above all else, Mark failed him. He failed him as a father and then lied to him about it. He wasn't talking about the inevitable trauma that this would cause his son. His focus was getting his son out of the house and making that drive in order to protect his son. Uh, No, no, no. It was so he could begin to try to save his own hide as soon as possible. If he was concerned about his son, he would have never let this happen to begin with. During his phone confession with us, he said that his son may hate me, but he will be better off. Do you think he will have a good life living like this, knowing what had happened to his mom? Well, you know, kids have an amazing ability to forgive. And mom was sick. And mom was very sick. And she didn't think she was going to be around for him that much longer anyway. I sit there and told y'all that she was sick and she was redoing her will and she thought she was going to die. That's not, that wasn't made up. That's the truth. He's doing a lot of assuming here for his own benefit. He's now admitted to killing her, so why continue to speak ill of her? It seems like he's rationalized murdering her in his own mind. It doesn't sound like a man who feels any remorse whatsoever. Even if someone executes their will, even if they're allegedly abusing pills or sick or unhappy, this idea of she wasn't going to be around much longer anyway just doesn't pass muster as an excuse to kill. That's just a delusional way of thinking. He didn't commit an act of heroism by murdering her. Are you kidding me? He didn't do that child a favor. No child is better off with their mother deceased and their father locked up for her murder. That is ridiculous. He said the times are all the same as he told us, but when he drove to Odessa to drop her son off, he had left her body in the apartment in a closet wrapped in a blanket. I wrapped her up before I left. 
What did you wrap her up in? A blanket, and then I put her back, her bot, her head in a trash bag, so I didn't have to look at her face. I stood there looking at her, and I almost called the police then. But he didn't call the police. Far from it. The hatred this man had for her seems to have run so deep. It really begs the question, how long had it been brewing? You've heard me say the number one need in all people is acceptance and the number one fear is rejection. You've also heard me say someone like Mark Castellano would perceive being rejected by a woman such as Michelle Warner to be an awfully long way to fall. And this woman had borne his son, and he's now wrapping her corpse in blankets and sheets and putting trash bags on her head. He was literally preparing to dispose of her as if she was garbage. The woman he had once shared a home with, in one split second, She's walking down the hall, and in the next split second, he's wrapping up her body and putting a trash bag over her head, ready to dump her out in the countryside like so much trash. What could he have been thinking? What could have been brewing within him while all of this was going on? This wasn't something that just snapped. He didn't just fall forward and, oops, her neck snapped. I mean, let's be serious about this. It's particularly haunting to note the anger he felt for her even after he had killed her. His anger towards her was so intense that he couldn't stand to look at her face, not for a second. And by the way, he choked her until her neck snapped. That's an incredibly intimate way to kill someone. He didn't shoot her from across the room. He ended her life with his bare hands. Now, in order to do that, there are two carotid arteries that lie in the front of the neck on either side of the trachea or the windpipe. These are the arteries that carry most of the blood from the heart to the brain, probably about 90%. The carotids are interconnected in the brain so that in a normal individual, compressing a single carotid artery will have little effect. But when you compress both you can cause a loss of consciousness in 15 to 20 seconds and death in 2 to 4 minutes. So suffice it to say, he fell forward on her and choked her for a good while. At least 15 to 20 seconds for her to become unconscious and longer still for her to actually die. My point is... He had the opportunity to stop, and he didn't do it. I'll never forget the anger I felt from him when he told me that he felt like she owned him, owned him. He felt beaten down, emasculated, out of control. Maybe in that brief moment, once he had killed her, he felt power, like he had finally won. Maybe he felt like through this violence he was rebelling and asserting himself. Makes you wonder how he feels now. We can't know for certain everything that went on between these two behind closed doors. Mark has his version and those close to Michelle knew hers. 
But we can reason that this was a relationship that was so filled with venom and resentment, all cooped up in that tiny Houston apartment, that one night, one of them would leave alive. The other would wind up with a garbage bag over their head, neck snapped, and being dragged down the stairs in a container. People always talk about how things happen just out of the blue. And let me assure you, domestic violence that rises to this level seldom, if ever, comes totally out of the blue. Abuse most often escalates. The boundaries just keep getting pushed. Someone might have a certain act of violence against their partner, interpersonal violence, at one time, and once they've crossed that threshold, it's easy to cross it again and go to a new boundary. It can start with yelling, then advance to pushing, then further physical violence, and before you know it, you're in an unhealthy and dangerous situation. Verbal abuse can often become just how you communicate with your partner as opposed to only when you're in a heated argument. Your spouse might speak badly of you to others. We know this to be true. Mark was constantly making disparaging remarks about Michelle when he was talking to me and even continued to do so after he had made a confession. Clearly, there was a seething anger beneath the surface with this man. Now remember, he drove eight hours to Odessa to drop his son off with his family and then hastily made the trip back to the apartment early the next day to dispose of her body. Now that's a long road trip to think about what you've done. He could have turned himself in. During this entire ordeal, he has all of these chances to at least try to right some of his wrongs. Instead, he returned home to Houston, he goes back in that apartment, and then moves her body in a big Walmart storage container. He has to now get her in the car, then set back out to hide the body. This was all done, according to him, with some difficulty. He remarked that her body was heavy, which he knew because he had already moved her into the closet to hide her while he drove their son to Odessa. He said to get the body from the apartment to the car, he had to slide the container she was in down the stairs. He made a lot of comments about how he was in this weakened state, saying she was heavy, that his heart felt like it was going to explode, that he was in shock. Well, he sure got a lot done for someone who was under all of that stress and duress. Like I said, I'm not very weak, so I mean, the fact that I'm able to do any of it still surprises me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, with my, my health and everything deteriorating. So he slides her down the stairs. Anyone who might have seen him would have just thought he was moving some odds and ends into storage rather than a dead body. I mean, who thinks you're moving a dead body down the stairs in some plastic container? Finally, he hefts her into the back seat and hits the road again. He's heading into a part of the country that he knows is just dust and oil fields and not much else. It is very desolate. It is not at all populous. 
It is big in scope. It's the perfect place to hide something you don't want found. Something like a body. So her dead body had been in the very car he had been willing to show me only two days prior. It's chilling to think I was looking inside a vehicle that had held Michelle's dead body to be dumped like trash in an oil field. Something just did not feel right to me when he showed me that car. He seemed almost too eager to do so, to show that he really had nothing to hide. See for yourself, I'm the good guy, was his attitude. He had this narrative that he was trying to sell me on. He was the beleaguered IT nerd just trying to do his best with a wild and unpredictable ex-girlfriend who had now skipped town. He kept emphasizing how cooperative he had been in the investigation of her disappearance. In a manipulative move, in our original interview, he even seemed to disparage the police working the case. You know, I know Houston PD looks at this as probably low priority, but... You know, there there's some truth somewhere in that apartment. I believe that. There's some truth somewhere on one of those phones and maybe on one of those hard drives. If they would really take a look, they might actually find exactly where she where she is. Oh really? The apartment that he had wiped down. He's being cavalier here. He's mock urging police to find the clues. Only because he probably felt confident that he was the smartest guy in the room and that he could not be outwitted. Mark was playing a game, or at least trying to, with the police, with me, maybe even with himself. But he didn't know who his opponents were. I had a background in this, and I was on to him before we even called him and asked for an interview. But now the jig was up. It's also interesting that he said he had confessed because he felt bad about lying to me and that he texted my producer to let her know the truth. He wanted us to know before it made the news. You would think that we would be the last thing on a murderer's mind when he is at the police station deciding to confess. But when we meet these people, people that are in extreme situations, in vulnerable positions, they often quickly get attached to us in the days we're with them. And we become people they trust, people they don't want to let down. And in this case, that brought Michelle Warner the justice she deserved. There's another element that was happening here. Mark Castellano, in my view, was a malignant narcissist. And it was important to him what we thought of him. It was important to him what kind of impression he left on us. And he actually believed that he would endear himself to us by telling us the truth. And somehow or another, that would mitigate the horrific act that he had done. That maybe perhaps we would be a bit kinder to him in our handling of the situation on the air. Mark told my producer he was about to lead police to Michelle's body. He was describing to her where he had hidden it. When this day got even crazier. While she was talking to him on her cell phone, her office line rang. When she saw the number, she knew she had to pick it up. 
it popped up on the caller ID, Houston Police Department. We had been in touch with them from the beginning. We never want to hide what we're doing or who we're interviewing when it pertains to an open investigation or cooperating with law enforcement. They are very good to us in helping us in everything we're trying to put together, and we reciprocate that. Unlike most of the media, we share with them what we have. If it's something that could hurt them building a case, I don't do it. Even if it drives my team over the edge. If my team books a really great story and the police say, wait, no, 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 that could really hurt this ongoing investigation right now, then it's a no. We don't run it until we get a green light, and there is no convincing me otherwise. I am here to support law enforcement 100% in the pursuit of criminals. My producer knew she had to take that call, even though Mark was talking and talking. She asked him to hold on a second and grab the other line. When she answered the phone, she had no clue what the police would say. They said, you won't believe this. Before you air your interview, you shot the other day, you should know this guy walked in here and confessed to us. He said he had lead us to the body and he is in an interrogation room right now confessing to someone in detail on the phone. We let him keep the phone because we're letting him keep talking. At that moment, they dialed that phone. They did not yet know it was actually her he was talking to. When she returned, Mark continued, apologized again for lying, and then hung up. Sorry, I lied to you. Little things like that do bother me. Yes, the man blatantly lied to my face. But I'm not the one he owes an apology to. I can think of many people way ahead of me in that line. Michelle's children, her family and friends. Little things like that bother me, he said of lying. Well, how about murder? Does that bother him? Because you'd think an honest Abe would also be haunted by the murder he had committed. He claimed he wanted to tell me the day I met with him. He said he didn't want to lie all the time because that was something she did. So even when he's expressing regret over the web of lies and the wild goose chase he's created, he's presenting it as if to say that he typically holds himself to a much higher standard of truth while she was the one who's constantly lying. But in this case, it would be the one who was constantly lying because she was no more. He had taken her life. So it's yet another insinuation that she was not a good person, not as good as he was. In his mind, he was the fallen angel, the good guy while she was the devil that made him behave like a monster and murder her. Sitting in that police department, he knew it was all over. So he was trying to save face in the only way he knew how, to try and depict himself as this broken man who was once good. Mark was ready to lead authorities to Michelle's body. He had buried on an oil rig out in his hometown 
500 miles away. He had left her there in a lonely, impersonal grave. Yeah, she's covered up, but she's not really getting too well. I mean, I, I did this knowingly that I was going to get caught. So, I mean, I covered her up to the point where it was decent, but as far as burying, burying, no, I didn't, I, I, I didn't have the strength to do that. Again, it's the poor me. I didn't have the strength. Oh, I'm sorry to hear you lack that stamina to give the ex-girlfriend you murdered a proper burial. I have to tell you, I'm just not buying this weakling nonsense. Remember, he killed her using only his physical strength, no weapons of any kind. Does that seem like a frail individual to you? His other defense is again this, oh, I knew I was going to get caught business, so no need to bury her efficiently. Okay, so why drive 500 miles in the dead of night to bury her at all if you're expecting to get caught? He says he covered her up to a point where it was, quote, decent. Mark Castellano, don't use words you don't understand. Take decent out of your vocabulary. The one thing that he did that was maybe halfway right was confess. He only did that after myself and the police and I think a lot of judgmental stares from family members pushed him to the very edge. Only then did he finally teeter over. He was a weak man and sometimes weak men who you wouldn't expect to be capable of it can be murderers. Even in his confession he was weak. I don't care about me, but they can kill me. The craziest thing is, police say, if he hadn't walked into that station and confessed, they would have probably never found her body. And he would have been a free man today. Coming up on episode four of the series, Michelle's family is notified of her death and decided they still wanted to be interviewed to honor her memory and fight for justice. Plus, a dramatic trial. So where is Mark Castellano today? What was the outcome? All that's next on Twisted Love. Bringing a murderer to justice. Mystery and murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.